Mary Nightingale. Welcome to the Piper Podcast, How I Grew My Brand. I'm with Erin Gelbard, founder of the hugely successful Bloom and Wild, the online company that has really shaken up the flower gifting market by delivering bouquets in boxes small enough to fit through the letterbox. Welcome, Erin. Thank you for having me. Well, it's very nice to meet you. Now, I don't know how much you know about Piper's principle of 71770. And it's the idea that at these particular points, whether it's turnover or people or whatever, there's an inflection point. So if you were to think of 71770, just give us an idea. Where are you in terms of people, for example? We are now approaching 70 people. And I do agree with the inflection point of 717 and 70. It sort of corresponds with when we've moved offices as well, when we've gone through stages of funding. And at each time as founder and CEO, my job has felt quite different as we move through those milestones and it's starting to feel different again. So it, re- it really does. And you have a sense that things there's a real step change. Absolutely. I think when you're seven people, you've got a group of generalists and you're just trying to muddle together and get everything done. When you're 17 people, as a founder, you're still very hands-on, but you're starting to build a proper management team and you're bringing in experts who have got more experience than you in their particular areas and starting to let go a bit more. And then when you're 70 people, your job changes again. For me now, I'm spending a lot of my time thinking about our people, our culture, how we make our teams work effectively together. And I'm doing a lot less doing myself, which actually I find really frustrating because I've got ideas in every area about what we can do differently and things I'd love to try. But I need to step away from that and allow my team to figure it out. So you do feel that sense of frustration, do you? That you want to get your hands dirty a little bit? Absolutely. I guess I'm 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 an entrepreneur and I love the concept of having an idea and then just doing something without there being any red tape. And it's one of the things that made me want to start a company rather than work in a big company like I used to. And it's frustrating when I feel like ultimately it's my responsibility and if I want something to happen I should be able to make it happen yet I can't just do that because if I just go around making unilateral decisions and telling people what to do all the time then people won't have a good experience and our culture won't be good and um, we won't attract great people to come and work for us and stay working with us so I've had to change my style and start to move towards having plans in each area that we lay out in advance and agree and it's all democratic and that's absolutely the sort of company I want to build but there's a niggle of frustration when I see something and think if we were seven people instead of 70 people this would be easier to sort out than it is now with 10 times as many people. Take me back to the beginning of the story. You launched in 2013, yes? Where did the idea come from for Bloom and Wild and also why the name? So the idea came from a few things. I was a customer of a company called Grey's that does snacks through the letterbox, and I really liked their product. I thought it was really innovative. I was also a frustrated customer of other online flower companies. I found the offering a little uninspiring, very difficult to order, especially on a mobile phone. Technology wasn't great, and the delivery experience wasn't great either. Flowers seemed to be expensive. They often wouldn't arrive. They'd arrive dead. You wouldn't get what you had ordered. And it struck me that this was really weird because we send flowers to express emotions to people that we really care about, yet there isn't a brand that we love. And I wondered if there was an opportunity to use the letterbox angle to make delivery better and to start to create something new. 
There's um, there's all sorts of other things that don't make sense in the flower industry as well. It's got a, a supply chain that's really inefficient. A lot of times, if you order flowers from other flower companies, they'll be fulfilled by a local flower shop um, close to where the delivery needs to go, which is great for really nifty same-day delivery. But it does mean that the flowers have gone through five or six steps in a supply chain and they can get expensive. They don't last very long when they arrive and there's a huge amount of waste along the chain. So there were there were lots of bits and pieces that I became aware of with my co-founder and which led us to think about starting a new online flower company. And the name, we wanted it to sound floral, we wanted it to sound memorable, we didn't want it to sound too sort of new age, I think. You know, you get all of these sort of trendy names that have got bloom with like a triple U in the middle or something like that. Um, (laughs) And um, we want it to be nice and easy to spell and find online and stuff like that and something that people would trust. Did you love flowers? Didn't know anything about flowers beforehand. Um, I guess to, to give you the backstory, I love pleasing people and positive feedback. And that's something that I've had with me since I was a little kid, I moved to the UK when I was five with my mum. And I guess when you move somewhere new and you try to fit in, you're always trying to please people and get validation. And that stuck with me. And I tried to obviously make friends, but then do well at school and university and then in my first couple of jobs. And after a little while, I I wanted to do something that was going to please people at a much bigger scale because that's what really motivates me in life. And when I started to think about becoming an entrepreneur and starting a company, I wanted to do something that was going to have this like mass positive impact. If I was a brilliant doctor and I could have cured a disease, that would have been better, <laughs> but I'm not. And I thought of flowers as something that really should please you know many, many people every day, but doesn't. And it was that that attracted me to the flower industry and to, to learning about it. I think what's counterintuitive, in a sense, about what you're doing is is that flowers should actually fit through a letterbox because the thing about flowers is they're big and they're three-dimensional and they need space and they need water. So how does this letterbox format work and why does it work? When we started, we weren't sure if it was going to work and there were we had to figure out how big the box could be. I'll come back onto that in a minute. And then we had to figure out what sorts of flowers we could fit in the letterbox. I guess what we learned is that when flowers are transported uh, further back their supply chain, um, when they leave farms, for example, they aren't transported in beautiful bouquets. They're transported in boxes where they're lying flat. So actually flowers can be and are transported in this way for the vast majority of their supply chain. Um, it's just that we as end consumers aren't used to seeing flowers in that format. We're used to seeing them prearranged. And our um, hypothesis that we wanted to test was that for some people, they would prefer the convenience of not needing to be at home or their recipient not needing to be at home and therefore not ruining the surprise to the flowers being arranged. What we learned additionally is that people didn't only prefer the convenience, they actually loved the product format as well because it gives the recipient a creative experience that a prearranged bouquet of flowers doesn't give you. Actually, we learned from recipients that they really enjoy that and they enjoy being able to prep the flowers in their own way. Sometimes people arrange them all into one vase and people have got different shapes of vases anyway. Um, Different shapes of vases suit different types of flower arranging. Sometimes people will split them across multiple vases um, and make little posies. So it makes the gift of receiving flowers more interactive for a recipient as well. We did not think of this when we started. We thought it was a functional benefit, but actually there's this additional benefit that we never thought of as well. 
The size of a letterbox. How big is a letterbox? Funny you ask. When <laughs>、um, when we started, we assumed there was a standard letterbox.、Um, unfortunately, not. We've、um, we've got to know the team at Royal Mail quite well, as I guess a decent sized customer for them now, and we've talked to them about this a lot. But there are no standard letterboxes, and there aren't any plans to introduce a standard letterbox. So, in the first few weeks, I. Went around London、um, with a notepad and a ruler and measured thousands of letterboxes and typed them all up into a spreadsheet and、um, figured out a distribution of letterbox dimensions and used this to figure out how、um, small a box would need to be to get through about ninety percent of letterboxes, which is what we aim for.、Um, and we've settled on dimensions of eighteen point four by three point five centimeters, which is pretty good. But there is no such thing as a standard letterbox. You are a real details person, aren't you? To be honest, I'm probably a bit too detailed, and we talked at the beginning about me、uh, needing to step back from things now that we're at seventy people. But yes, I am, and I think it's this attention to detail that can make a brilliant company that customers love. We have、um, a few values in our business, and the first, and in my mind, most important one is care, and it's something that we talk about multiple times a day on our team. And I think one of the ways that we can express care is by having this brilliant attention to detail and figuring out what to do to make the customer experience better and better. I'm going to talk to you more about the business in a bit, but I want to ask a little bit more about you because you mentioned coming to to England with your mother when you were five, and but you were actually born in France, weren't you? Tell me about your family. Bit of a hodgepodge. My mum's from Israel. My dad's from Australia. They settled in France together. They had me, and then they separated. And they brought me up speaking English because my dad doesn't speak any other languages. And I think they thought that I could get a better education as a like English-speaking boy here in the UK than in France. So my mum and I moved here when when I was five, and I went to school here. My Dad is an entrepreneur, and both my granddads were entrepreneurs. My mum's dad started a chocolate company、uh, with a couple of cousins, and so I guess the concept of entrepreneurship is something that we've talked about a lot in our family, and、um, that I always thought I might do one day. But my dad's also had his up, ups and downs as an entrepreneur, and so I wasn't one of these、uh, kids that wanted to like leave school at sixteen and started something right away. I thought it was important to. You know, go to university, get a few years' experience in a proper job, and earn some savings, and have something to go back to if it didn't work out. So you were quite sensible, I guess. Maybe、yeah. a bit too sensible. Well, maybe I don't know. Let's find out. You got a sensible job, though, didn't you? You worked in consultancy. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I worked in consultancy. I started my career at a smaller consulting firm called OC and C, and then after a few years, I moved to a large one called Bain and Company.、Um, at both of those. Companies I worked mainly with、um, clients in retail, consumer products, and technology. I became interested in e-commerce and some of the direct-to-consumer brands that were springing up. I mentioned Grays as an example.、Mm. There are some other brilliant ones,、um, especially in the U.S. I'm wearing glasses today from a company called Warby Parker, which I really admire, which has totally revolutionised how people buy glasses more affordably. And the good glasses. Thank you. Yeah.、I'm、glad you like、They're、them. Very、I、nice. I guess our, our <laughs> listeners can't see them. <laughs> We just have to imagine they're very cool. I'm writing down Warby and Parker now. Have a look, have a look at、you. them online for myself. So anyway, I, I became interested in direct-to-consumer brands, and as I started to think more about entrepreneurship, I guess I.、Um, 
I sort of figured that it was the right time to sort of the right time to take a risk. Quite a confident, quite a brave decision to break away from that very affluent and secure career path that you could have stuck with at Bain. Did you ever have any anxiety about? Loads of anxiety all the time. Still? Um, I still have anxiety now, um, different sorts of anxiety. I hadn't really failed at anything academic or career-wise. Like I'd done better or worse at stuff, but I'd never bombed. And I'd always been in a secure environment where if I worked hard, I'd get to the next level in whatever I was doing. And here I was taking it all on myself, and I didn't really know what I was doing. I hadn't started a company or even worked in a startup or, or that sort of environment before. So I was worried all the time. There were some particularly big lows in the first few months, which I can talk more about. And... You know, now I worry for different reasons. I worry about our ability to fundraise, which we have done regularly um, and without which our company would need to go on a different trajectory. I worry about our reliance on partners and the consequences of mass fail that could even be out of our control um, from a supply company or a delivery company or a technology provider. And there's all sorts of things that can go wrong all the time. And I guess I'm naturally a bit of a worrier. But it's been a huge success, hasn't it? Two years after launching, you were the UK's top-rated flower company, while scaling at a 1,000% year-on-year. 2017 named the second-fastest-growing business in the UK by Deloitte. I mean, by anyone's standards, that is an extraordinary degree of success, isn't it? Yeah, look, I'm I'm pleased with the progress we're making. I um, I don't take it for granted at all. And it's not just my success, it's our team's success. And ultimately, it's it's our customers that are allowing us to achieve those milestones. And being the top rated flower company is why we're the fastest growing flower company, not the other way around. And, um, and that's how we think about things on our team. We religiously track a metric called net promoter score, which is one of the things I learned at Bain. And we're really focused on understanding why anybody would not recommend us to a friend, trying to make it right with the individual person that gave us the negative feedback where it happens, and then trying to systemically change things so that it doesn't happen again. And I think our customers see that care when things don't go right, and also see how much effort we're putting into making things go right. And that's what's resulting in our growth. It's what's resulting in people ordering again and again. It's what's resulting in recipients going on to buy become customers, um, which means our product is viral. And it's what's resulting in people recommending us to their friends. About a quarter of our customers have discovered Bloom and Wild, according to some research done by Piper, actually, by um, having previously been a recipient. You mentioned lows along the way and things that didn't go according to plan. What sort of things happened? When we were getting started, we hadn't raised any money. So it was just our savings. We were buying prototype boxes to send flowers through the letterbox um, from a company, a packaging company in South East London, and they were charging us about £30 a box to get them made one at a time because the dimensions were very specific and all sorts of things like that, and um, there was no sort of uh, long production run. So this felt really expensive, and we went through um, five or six of these £30 boxes, and we thought, this is ridiculous. We have to start getting them cheaper. So... We talked to this company 
And we said, how can we get the boxes cheaper? And they said, well, if you order a thousand of them instead of one at a time, then we can do them for £2.70 a box instead of £30 a box. So we spent the £2,700 on a thousand boxes and we sent out the first 20 of these boxes to some potential customers that we'd lined up who we told about the concept, were excited to see it. And then we called them up to see what they thought of them. And all 20 of the customers told us that the flowers had arrived mouldy. And it turned out that they developed a condition called botrytis, which is a type of flower mould that flowers can get when they don't have any ventilation. And we had not um, thought to ventilate our boxes. Now our boxes are all ventilated. And we tried to sort of run before we could walk here, and we ended up having to throw away 980 (laughs) of the 1,000 boxes, which is actually much more wasteful than the £30 at a time boxes. I'll never forget that because I think we... It reminds me to keep our feet on the ground and when we make decisions to think about the cash we'll spend in the short term and not try and sort of you know, finish building the company for now because you'll mm. learn more information along the way and you'll be able to make continuous improvements. So that was the, the first big fail. And what happened to your business partner? Because you started with, with Ben. Does he still work with you or did you go your separate ways? Somewhere in between. So um, Ben was running the business with me day to day for the first two and a half years or so. And then we decided that I would carry on running it. Ben is still on our board with me and with our investors um, and has gone on to start a different business now called Moneybox, which is an app for saving and investing money. And I hired a COO to replace Ben, a chap called Phil, who's brilliant, who has done a similar job before at um, another large, fast-growing startup called Birchbox, which is a American beauty uh, sample subscription product also goes through the letterbox and that's been absolutely right Ben is a is brilliant and he's particularly strong at the initial business model and putting those initial building blocks together but as we've moved into the scaling phase we felt that it would be right for me to run the company and to bring on board a COO to do it with me. Mm. What are the challenges were there in that early sort of startup period what was what was the biggest challenge if you like I think the biggest challenge was our technology so we had 30,000 pounds of our savings between the two of us to get the company off the ground we budgeted 3,000 of the 30,000 pounds for building the website and we had some developers in Thailand that were going to build it for us and um, they're going to charge 3,000 pounds and the whole thing was a mess and we had to move on and and find another developer to pick up from them and take over. And we actually went through, over the first year and a bit, uh, four different uh, sets of developers overseas, spent a lot more than £3,000. And you know, this was the worst aspect of the company. So much stuff on our website didn't work. It didn't look um, as beautiful as we wanted to. It didn't work on mobile as well as we wanted to. It didn't accept American Express. It said it only accepted Visa and MasterCard. It actually didn't work with a MasterCard at all. And we only figured this out about two months later and people were just trying to pay with their MasterCards and it was freezing and all sorts of stuff like this. And to be honest, we didn't know what we were doing. Because you wanted to make it an easy, pleasant, pleasurable experience, didn't you, for the for the consumer? I mean, I suppose that was fundamental to... to business working right? absolutely but we tried to do it on the cheap and yeah. we didn't understand what quality buys you how soon did you know that your idea was good enough to develop it it took a while to be honest what's a while a year maybe we started work on bloom and world in february 2013 and there are a few initial phases this is all in the the first seven people bits 
Ben and I just getting the company set up phase. We needed to find a supplier. We needed to get these boxes made. We needed to get an initial website made. We needed to set up a bank account, be able to accept payments online, all sorts of stuff like that, come up with a name, a brand, etc. That took the first few months. And then we were open for business, um, still not really doing any marketing, but taking some sales mainly from people we knew. And then we... Well, we raised our first seed funding. We hired our first couple of people and we started to do a bit of marketing. And actually about a year after we started, we had our first Mother's Day. And I remember we took a thousand orders that week, which was at the time a huge amount for us. And, you know, this was not just people we knew. This was all sorts of customers choosing to express emotion to their mum at a really important time of um, the year with us when there were all sorts of other companies that they could choose to do so but then actually we um we only delivered on tuesdays and thursdays at the time so they were choosing our product even though it's going to arrive three or five days before mother's day or even two days after mother's day for the forgetful types rather than actually on <laughs> mother's day and at that point i sort of knew that um this was something that people seemed to want to buy and shortly after that we raised a second larger amount of seed funding there have been a lot of bumps since then but um i guess seeing that Mother's first Mother's Day trading gave me the confidence that this was something that people wanted to buy. Mm. And when the first person bought your product who you didn't know or wasn't a friend of a friend or, or, or something, I suppose, must have been another milestone, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, huge um, milestone, actually. Ben and I used to sit in this. Um, we rented a third of a 500-square-foot office from another slightly larger startup in Earlsfield, and we used to sit next to each other, and we used to get an email every time somebody made an order and we'd always look at each other and sort of check which of us knew the person. Um, and we remember, both of us actually, the first time, I think we'd been going about a month or so, and somebody placed an order, and it turned out neither of us knew who the person was. And this was sort of astounding that somebody had actually found out about the company and decided to try it. But, well, it was a weird moment, but I, I remember that and thinking that was really inspiring. You were talking about Mother's Day, and this is probably a very um, naive question, but there are presumably these big big occasions throughout the year. You know, I'm thinking Valentine's Day, for example, and Mother's Day, I guess, the two biggies. How much of a, a surge do you have at that at those times? Enormous. Do you? Um, Mother's Day is by far the biggest for us, actually, um, partly because 80% of our customers are women, so we tend to be a female-to-female gifting company rather than a male-to-female gifting oh, company. That's interesting. Yeah. And um, I, I guess the reason why, just as an aside, is I think when men buy flowers for women, there's a preconception of what women would like to receive that, you know, there's this um, sort of tradition of the man comes home from the day at the office and the wife opens the door and the man hands her this big bunch of flowers that he's bought somewhere. But actually, I think um, when women give flowers to other women, it tends not to be so much of the grand gesture. It tends to be a little lower average order value a little more frequent to a broader range of recipients and I think women gift to other women what they themselves would want to receive and this gives me confidence in our product that women will choose letterbox flowers for other women because they'd actually the woman who's the giver would enjoy arranging them herself and receiving flowers in that way but Mother's Day is by far the biggest peak we have other peaks Christmas is a big peak for us as well we do mini Christmas trees through the letterbox that's a small Christmas tree how does a Christmas tree fit through a letterbox well Christmas trees this was part of the inspiration for the idea so when you buy a big Christmas tree uh, you know six foot one or something and you take it home in your car they actually put it in a net um, so that it fits sort of in your car and 
that was what gave us the idea for putting nets around the flower heads to protect and compress them in transit. People obviously buy a lot of flowers for Christmas. Actually, they're two slightly different peaks. The Christmas trees peak for delivery in the first half of December because you wouldn't, I guess, get somebody a Christmas tree for Christmas. It's more of a um, seasonal gift. A lot of the time it's businesses buying them for their customers as well. And then there's a second peak later in December of people actually buying flowers as Christmas presents for others. Um, Often a thank you if they're going to be hosted somewhere or actually our flower subscriptions also become popular at Christmas people will buy other friends and family three six months even a year of flowers um, once a month as a Christmas gift. When you get to about seven people in in the business what are the triggers that make you think okay this is the point where I need to bring in somebody different or buy in more expertise or for your role to perhaps change a little bit? When we got to about seven people, we started thinking about raising venture capital funding. And I guess what we figured was that if we could bring in sort of more experienced professionals to lead particular areas, we could start to take our business to the next level. So at that point, we set about trying to raise venture capital funding from a sort of institution rather than um, the angel funding that we'd had at this point so that we could scale our marketing budget, scale our investment in technology and bring on board leaders in the areas of our business that we had, which were operations, marketing, technology and brand. Um, And that was that first sort of inflection point. So you funded that early part through through getting venture capital in? We've had a few phases. So we had £30,000 of our savings to start with, and that got us to getting the company up and running. We then raised a million pounds of seed funding in two goes, um, which got us to the seven people and got us through our first year and a half or so, um, first two sets of peaks, Christmas through to Mother's Day. And then we raised two and a half million pounds of venture capital funding in the summer of 2015, which was our first venture capital round. And that was what enabled us to go on the 7 to 17 journey. Listening to the Piper Podcast with Aaron Gelbard, founder of Bloom and Wild. Biggest change in the seven to seventeen phase was two things. One was having this venture capital funding in place, which gave us lots of opportunity to start doing exciting new things, scale up our marketing, and build an app. We experimented for the first time with advertising on TV, which we would have not had the budget to do without venture capital funding. But perhaps most importantly, it went from me scrambling to try and do everything myself with Ben to us having professionals leading the important areas of our company. And I think that that allowed the company to really progress. My time and capacity to get stuff done myself became less of a bottleneck. Money was still a bottleneck, but it wasn't as tight a bottleneck as it had been. And so we could invest in experiments and learning things um, more than we were able to at the beginning. Mm. And what about when you hit 17? So when we got to 17, I guess we started to think about further funding. At this point, we were scaling the business nicely in the UK. The growth rate was really exciting. You mentioned some large early growth numbers. Um, We were finding marketing channels that were working. We were doing a lot of Facebook marketing at that time, and it was um, working really nicely. We built a successful refer-a-friend program. So it felt like the business was sort of growing and starting to get to this like escape velocity. And so At that point, we thought if we had further funding, what might we be able to do um, on top of what we're doing now? And I guess we concluded we could 
make the customer experience better. We could accelerate our marketing more and get the word out there to even more people. And we could start to think about international. So I'm glad that we've sort of planted the seeds, if you'll excuse the pun, for um, international early so that when the UK growth does start to taper, there'll be meaningful growth coming from our international markets at that point. And mm. that, as we got beyond 17 people and started to think about the journey to 70 people, we knew this was going to be a an international company, not just a UK company. And then you uh, got involved with Piper. Yeah, so we've um, we've known the team at Piper for a couple of years now, which is um, brilliant. Like, it's a cliche, but people always say if you want to raise money, then you shouldn't... Um, start to form a relationship with the investor at the time when you want to raise the money they should um they should know you and you should know them for a while before and that will sort of build the confidence on both sides so we'd met the team um at piper a couple of years ago i was introduced by a fellow entrepreneur that runs a brand in a different online category and i guess we'd sort of stayed in touch over time um, we had done a couple of pop-up shops um which they um, somebody from their team came to visit and we'd sort of meet up periodically. I spoke at um, one of their events, a couple of my colleagues did as well, and we, we started to just sort of build that trust in each other over time. And I guess when we were ready to raise this um, larger round of investment this year, it sort of made sense to um, start the conversation with Piper. They were interested in having the conversation with us and we were interested in having the conversation with them. Do you take advice easily? Depends on what. Um, on areas where I feel like I'm not qualified, absolutely. So, for example, um, we talked about technology. We um, we weren't getting that right to begin with. Mm. And somebody introduced me to, to a chap called Jackson Hull, who's now um, a non-exec on our board. And, um, and he became our tech advisor sort of about a year, a year and a half after we started. And that role was critical to us in the early days because we didn't know how to interview software developers, tell who was good and who wasn't, figure out how to start to scale a software team, figure out um, whether we should use you know, Amazon Web Services or Heroku for infrastructure, things like that. I still don't really know how to make that sort of decision. So where necessary, yes. Um, on the other hand, I think I've learned over time that sometimes you need to be confident and, and try and do stuff yourself. And um, the more people you involve, the more complexity you can introduce as well. So actually with with fundraising, we haven't used a broker or a fundraising advisor or bank or anything like that. We have built the relationships ourselves with potential investors and done it that way. So it's really depended on on what the sort of domain is. What was the best piece of advice you were ever given? I think at the beginning, I was um, taught by a few people who'd already started businesses before me, this idea of minimum viable product, which I mentioned before. And it's super important because I remember our early plans and looking back at them and we'd planned in so many bells and whistles. A lot of the things that we thought were sort of necessary at the beginning are things that we still haven't done now five years later. What sort of things? complexity for managing subscriptions in a different way for recipients and senders of gift subscriptions. I remember at the beginning thinking that this was a critical piece of functionality that we couldn't launch without and really sort of stressing about it. It's a silly example, but it it kind of makes a point. That's not a minimum viable product you can launch without. And if recipients want to change their subscription date, they can contact you and tell you what date they want it instead and you can change it for them yourself. 
So kind of keep it simple. Keep it simple, exactly. And um, start with a simple version and let your customers tell you what additional bells and whistles they want, which won't be the ones that you think they want because you can't predict them. Mm. What does success look like? Most importantly, success is remaining the top-rated online flower company in every market in which we operate as we get bigger. I think without that obsession with customer advocacy will be nowhere. So we'll never trade off net promoter score or review score for scale. With that guardrail in place, I'd like to make Bloom and World as big as possible. The reason why we're building this company is to make sending and receiving flowers the joy that it should be. And in order to achieve that ambition, we should be doing it for as many people as possible. I would love every flower gifting experience that ever happens to be a brilliant one. I'm then really excited to be taking Bloom and Wild International. We started doing that about a year ago. Germany and France so far? Is yeah, right? Germany, France and Ireland so far. And really encouraging early results. International is now about 10% of our business um, after a year, which I'm really excited about. And I think there's an opportunity to to build not just a flower gifting brand that people love in the UK, but across Europe and maybe one day even beyond Europe. You're now around 70 staff. Yep. Piper involved. Mm-hmm. What happens next? On the leading aspect, we're experimenting with more and more forms of marketing and figuring out how we can scale our proposition even more, make it appeal to an even more mass audience. And Piper have been really helpful with that already in their first few mm. months of involvement. Their expertise with thinking about how to evolve our proposition differently in different markets is really helpful as well. We're in parallel trying to make the product even better. So that means investment in technology, investment in floristry, packaging, branding, collaborations, improving our customer experience, the way that we serve our customers, all of which cost money in the short term and all of which we need to get right. And so working with a partner that's helped other brands go on this journey is uh, a real privilege. What are the anxieties that that keep you awake at, at night now? There's a couple of things. There's, you know, will we be able to scale to the extent that, you know, in parallel with our ambition? And, you know, I want to succeed. I want to look my investors in the eye and feel like I've done what I said I was going to do when um, when they decided to back me. And that, you know, my my own sort of moral compass means that I want to do that right. So that definitely keeps me awake at night. I guess the other thing is the... The scale of something going wrong now, the size that we're at at the moment, is big and it only gets bigger. So if we have a fundamental like technology failure, if we um, source flowers for a peak and they're not of good quality, if we're let down at huge scale by Royal Mail or a, a carrier at peak, the impact is, you know, tens of thousands of people that are, are really upset. It's huge reputational damage. Each mistake that we, we make, and we will make mistakes, we do and will continue to do so, will be more costly. And so I, I therefore have a higher and higher bar for avoiding making mistakes. And that's why I've got this obsession with detail. I think that's, you know, it's so important. Is that a quality or is that something you need to watch? Can it, can it tip into obsession? It's both. And it's, um, that's one of my main personal challenges at the moment. I think it's really helped us get to 70 people. Like there isn't a, a 700 people in the Piper framework. We do um, 360 feedback as part of our sort of performance review process twice a year. I get 360 feedback from everybody on the team. 
this is by far the most common message I get that I need to step away from some of the detail in people's areas and trust them more. And over time, I need to continue to build out our teams and build that trust and step away and let people do my job and have my obsession with detail um, in their areas. Mm. What advice would you give to anyone thinking of setting out on a similar journey? Do it and do it sooner. I think I was I was too scared of failure. I think us as, as a nation in Britain are, are a bit too scared of failure. People do have this natural conservatism here. I think we, we start fewer companies than per capita than people in the US do. And we maybe um, don't build them to the same scale because we're more worried about failure and, and want to sort of bank that safer outcome. I think if it doesn't work, you learn a huge amount from it. You can try again. You'll be more likely to be backed as a second-time entrepreneur. You're way more hireable if you've been an entrepreneur, even if you're a failed entrepreneur, because you've shown that work ethic, get up and go, etc., which are really important. And... I think it's worth doing and if it's something that's your dream, you know, you live on this planet once and you should give it a go and if it doesn't work out, you can do something else. Aaron Gelbart, thank you so much. Thank you.